remember that starting here in chapter 7 in the, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, he, he's starting to deal with some things now that the Corinthians had written in a letter to Paul. Um, they had some questions. They had some opinions. And they wanted Paul's response to these things. And you see that back in verse 1. If you glance up there, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Uh, the first time it says this in the book of 1 Corinthians. But when we get to verse 25 of this chapter, there seems to be another specific issue that Paul has raised in the letter. Look what he says there. Now concerning the betrothed. Apparently they had written and had said, Paul, hey, listen, we think it's a good idea for those who are unmarried to stay unmarried, to remain single. We think it's a more spiritual way of life. And Paul's going to answer their concerns in our text this morning. Uh, before we jump into the text, and I am going to try to speak quickly today because I have a, a lot to go through this morning in this passage. But first, let's make, under, let's make sure we're understanding what's going on. Uh, when Paul uses that term, the betrothed, in verse 25, he's speaking to single people. He's literally, the word betrothed means virgins. Some of you might see that as a study note there in your, in your Bible. Um, so these are, these are singles who have never been married, but they are headed toward marriage, or they have an understood agreement that they will marry someone. It's not entirely unlike our system of engagement, that we have uh, here in the Western culture, but it would involve more formal family involvement. And, and in the church, there seemed to be, at Corinth, some who were suggesting that it was unspiritual to get married. Should these betrothed go ahead and get married as planned, or should they dissolve their relationships and stay unmarried? And Paul's response is very direct in these verses and very wonderfully pastoral. He tells us that both to marry and not to marry are potentially God-pleasing options, both of them. Now, he does mention in verse 26 the present distress. There's a lot of controversy over what that means among Bible scholars. Many say that Paul was referring to a famine, a major famine that took place in that part of the world um, during this time when Paul was writing. Or it might have been some pressure that the, the Christians were under from the Roman government, which, of course, was happening more and more as time went along. Uh, it might have been a time of real economic hardship. Paul may just be referring to the, uh, the time that the Christians are now in with the return of Jesus Christ to heaven, the last days that have been going on since Jesus returned to heaven. And, of course, it will end when... He comes back, and that's what we're looking for, our blessed hope. So the present distress, we're not exactly sure what that phrase means. It could mean all of those different things. But whatever it was, Paul says remaining single could well be the better option. But it's not the only option. Pursuing marriage is a perfectly valid alternative. And he wants people to know in Corinth, he wants us to know, that it is no sin he says that several times. So in Paul's view, singleness might be preferable, but not for the reasons that were being suggested there in Corinth. Only in light of the present distress, only in light of the increased troubles that would come to the married, does Paul give his counsel. So for example, in verse 27, Paul says, are you bound to a wife 
do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. That's the extent of Paul's preference for singleness. He says to some, yes, I would encourage you to get married. That is, or encourage you not to get married, he would say to some. That's the situation in Corinth. That's Paul's response to them in a nutshell. Now, our situation in 2022 is obviously very different in some ways from the time of the Apostle Paul. Other ways, it's very similar. So how do we take this this truth, this abiding truth here in 1 Corinthians 7 and allow it to speak to us today? Well, here's what I want to do this morning, and I hope it will be helpful to you. I want to make six statements to help unpack this passage. I'm going to go through those six statements rather quickly. Then I want to draw out after that three lines of application. And I want to spend a little more time than I normally do on application of the text today because I feel that's kind of what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 7 is he's taking extra time laying out specific situations to give more practical instruction, more counsel to the Corinthians. So I'm hoping that it's in those applicational times especially that the real usefulness of the sermon today will be in. So let's look at these six statements. We'll go through them quickly to kind of unpack the text. It's not difficult to understand. Number one, statement number one, neither marriage nor singleness is morally superior to the other. Neither marriage nor singleness is morally superior to the other. Paul makes this point repeatedly through this chapter, probably most clearly in verse 7 where he speaks of both of these statuses as good gifts from God. Paul is regularly saying things like, in this circumstance, it's good to be single. In this circumstance, it's good to be married. And that word good, which pops up here in verse 8, pops up in verse 26, the word good is not just a nice, a nice word that doesn't mean anything. You know, like, how are you doing this morning? Good. You know, it's not like that. The the word good here is speaking about the endorsement of God, about the favor of God. Paul is affirming both statuses. He honors both statuses. He does suggest to us that this one or that one is a better alternative for a specific situation, for a specific time. But, um, but but, But what he's saying here is that that neither one of them is morally superior to the other. So we need to put that idea completely away from us. Now, I don't know that we think that way as a church family, but if there's any hint of that in our thinking that singleness or marriage is better than the other status, and we would communicate that to people who are either married or single in our church, that is not correct. That doesn't serve other people, and it isn't true. Neither marriage nor singleness is morally superior, more God-pleasing than the other status. That's statement number one. Statement number two, there seems to be a gift of celibacy. Pastor Ertl preached on this text a few weeks ago, uh, back in verses seven through nine. There seems to be a gift of celibacy, but there are other reasons for singleness, and some of those reasons are good. So there seems to be a gift of celibacy, whatever that means, but there are other reasons 
for singleness, and some of those are good. We saw this a couple weeks ago, back in verses 7 through 9. Paul says, there's this gift, and then there's that gift. And he proceeded in verse 8 to talk to the unmarried, the widows. They didn't have a gift of celibacy. They'd already been married. And then in verse 9, he says to some of those people that he's speaking to, listen, if you cannot control your passions, then it's good for you to get married. So clearly they didn't have the gift of celibacy. So this group that he's addressing in verse 8 is not those that have the gift of celibacy, and yet he says to them, it is good for you to remain single. The same kind of thing comes out in some of the verses we just read here a few moments ago. In our text, there are some good reasons, other than a special gift of celibacy, to remain single. Listen, when you, when you think about it, to, to, to stop and, and just think about the reasons for singleness in our day and age, there are several possible reasons for the person may be single. Uh, they may have a gift, a supernatural gift, of celibacy. Here's another one. Uh, you might be single as the result of your own sin or as the result of someone else's sin. I think that's a huge part of today's scene. And, and, and there are many other ways and reasons why people are single. Of course, we talked about some are widowed because their spouses have gone on. Uh, they've passed away. And, and so some of these situations um, uh, to remain single can still be a good thing. And we'll think about that a little bit more in application here in a few moments. A third statement I want to make from our text here is that one should pursue what enables the greatest devotion to the Lord. One should pursue what enables the greatest devotion to the Lord. Coming out of verse 35. But back up to verse 32 Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. He's saying he wants all of us to be free from sinful anxiety. What is that? It's a preoccupation with the things of this world. A preoccupation with the things of this world. Paul wants married people. He wants single people to be this way. But then he plays with the word anxious. And he uses it in a couple, in a couple ways here that are not sinful. So he tells us he wants us to be free from sinful anxieties, but now look what it says in verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious. He's using it now in a non-sinful way. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But, 33, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So it's important to catch that play on words here. He's saying, listen, you have married and single, you both have legitimate cares, legitimate concerns, legitimate worries, or not, worries isn't the best term, but you have responsibilities um, uh, that you have to take care of. But I want you both to live without sinful anxiety, even af- as you have to take care of your correct anxieties, if that makes sense, in this life. So make no mistake here, he wants people who are considering marriage to be fully aware that marriage has its troubles. Verse 28, marriage has worldly things, 
to be concerned with. Now, that worldly doesn't mean sinful again. It just means of the world. When you are married, you have things, worldly things that have to do with marriage. You have to be concerned with. Verse 33, verse 34, both mention that. Singleness does have this clear advantage. It is without those anxieties. It's without those cares. And those cares can be considerable. Not just the work it takes to have a good marriage, but also the emotional weight that we bear for one another within marriage. So now back to the statement, one should pursue what enables the greatest devotion to the Lord. What will enable you to serve Christ without sinful anxiety? For some, marriage is clearly the way to do that because for them, remaining single would be distracting. I would put myself in that category, for example. Being married actually helps me to focus and frees me from certain distractions in the world. The real cares of marriage are not a sinful distraction for me. They, they help to focus me. They're good for me. Marriage frees me up to spend my life more effectively for the Lord. In that context. I think a lot of people are in that context. But I also want to say that Marriage seems to be the predominant way in God's design. In other words, most people get married statistically. Now, I will tell you, that is shrinking. Um, and, and singles are now a much larger part of our population than ever before. But even though marriage seems to be the predominant way that God has designed people, it is not the better way. It's not the better way, but it seems to be the most common. For others, marriage would be a distraction. Statement number four, there is in many cases a freedom of judgment. Look at verse 37. Paul says, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed. In other words, not move on to marriage, but keep her in that state of betrothment, of engagement, of singleness. He will do well. Four phrases here Paul uses to communicate the exercise of free judgment. Do you see them? Firmly established in his heart. Under no necessity. Having his desire under control. That means under his authority. And determined this in his heart. And notice, this decision is not one of right versus wrong, but of wisdom and judgment. There's some freedom here, is what Paul's saying. So those who are single with a supernatural gift of celibacy... Those who don't burn with passion. And there are those who, who get married, and, and that's a gift too. Marriage is a great gift. Celibacy can be a great gift. And there are those who could get married, but choose not to. And this could be a good and God-pleasing way to do it. 
And it all depends on the reasoning of your heart. I, I can imagine somebody seeing verse 37 and thinking, I'm going to use that verse as something to hide behind, to justify my selfishness. I've determined in my own heart that this is the best way for me to glorify God, but really the real reason, and I know this underneath, is so that I can, I can, I can pursue self-centered things and not be tied down or bound to a wife. And that can look different for men than it does for women. But the reason needs to be, if you're choosing to be single, I'm choosing this carefully, wisely, because I believe it will honor God. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. Statement number five. There seems to be in this passage a very significant role for pastoral wisdom. There seems to be in this passage a very significant role for pastoral wisdom. Look back at verse 26. Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. We've heard that many times, haven't we? Verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. You hear Paul's heart coming out here, don't you? Like he's sitting across the room in a counseling setting from you. He's sharing his heart. Verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So here are these Christians. They have sought out Paul's counsel. Some of them maybe humbly, some of them maybe not so humbly. We know what's going on in Corinth, right? It's a mess. But Paul is going to seize the opportunity to give some pastoral counsel here. He says, listen, given the circumstances, here's what I recommend. Here's what I think will help you live to the glory of God. Most effectively, he's caring for them. He's pastoring them. He's counseling them. And in this case, of course, his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he is the full weight of the authority of God behind these words. But even when biblical pastoral counsel is given that doesn't have inspired authority behind it, like the kind I give or Pastor Greg gives, there is still a real avenue of God's grace there. God has put shepherds in the church just as he had put Paul in Corinth their counsel should be sought out and considered. And the first place always to look is right here in the Word of God. That's the first place we look, right? So receive this as God-endorsed, God-authorized pastoral counsel. But hopefully this is also the kind of church where you will hear godly counsel from this pulpit and in private conversation, and, and, and a decision that you are going to make towards marriage or towards singleness, either way, is a significant decision. And it's best not to be taken lightly or to be made alone. God has provided wisdom, counsel, through careful pastoral uh, application of the Word of God, of this book here. 
So seek it out. And I love, uh, I've had many young people over the years uh, text me, email me, ask me this question or this question or this question. Sometimes about marriage, sometimes about you name it. And uh, it's a great privilege and honor to provide counsel to those individuals um, and to those who are married, who are struggling with different things in life. And, and of course, not only do the pastors have that, but many mature Christians in our congregation possess such wisdom and knowledge, and you can go to them as well. Statement number six. All of this thinking about marriage and singleness must constantly be considered in light of what is eternal. All of this thinking about marriage and singleness must constantly be considered in light of what is eternal. The issues can be so weighty sometimes, agonizing. But the true believer has a a radically different perspective on the things of this world. And I think that's the point Paul's trying to make in verses 29, 30, and 31. Look at them again. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul saying here? I think to boil it down, he's saying, listen, we've been doing a lot of talk about marriage and singleness, but neither marriage nor singleness is of very great importance compared to the reality of the world to come, of the reality of God's kingdom, which, which believers who are married live for and long for, and believers who are single live for and long for. The question of whether to pursue marriage or pursue singleness should be considered carefully, constantly, in light of what is eternal. The time is short. All right. Now, we could say a lot more about all those things, but I'm hoping that that gives us a basic grasp of what's being said in these verses. So now what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is to spell out some very practical lines of application for you. So there's three of these lines that I want to they want to take time to talk about. The third one I'll focus on the most uh, this morning. But the first application is for those who will continue in singleness. No matter what state you're in right now, whether you, you've never been married or whether you're divorced and single or whether you've been widowed and single, no matter how you came to your singleness, if you remain, continue in singleness, let me give some thought to you. Let me just share uh, a commendation from the Lord Jesus and then just a few basic questions for you. Here's the commendation. It comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew 19 and verse 12. Jesus said, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, don't take that last phrase to mean that some singles have done some kind of physical sterilization to themselves. That's not what that last phrase means. That's what the second phrase means, okay? That's not what the last phrase means. What Jesus is commending is the fact that some of his followers chose not to marry to become eunuchs, as it were, single, celibate, for the sake of the kingdom. Paul commends this very same possibility in 1 Corinthians 7. There's a vision here that some of you who are single need to see and respond to. This is not missing out on some better path. This is an investment that God is asking for. There's an opportunity to give yourself to him in a way that will bear an amazing amount of fruit in your life. Um, As you look at Christian history, as you look at history through the church ages, I know of many single men and many single women who have been spiritual fathers and mothers to many others, and they never perhaps married. Or God used them later in their life when they were single again. That doesn't mean that God says, you have to do like Amy Carmichael and move to India. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that. It could mean something like that. There are plenty of stories that you can read that will make you just about want to drop everything that you're doing and go. The question you have to ask yourself is, is there a work? Is there a place? Does God have something for me to do? It doesn't even have to be something formal. Is there something that I can do because I'm single, something I can give myself more fully to, something I can pour myself more into than if I was married and I choose to do that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his kingdom? I think about some of you. So gifted. Don't waste your singleness, brothers and sisters. Don't waste it. Ask God what he would have you do. Then give yourself to some work that will exalt Christ and serve people and produce a joy in your own heart. Do it in the church and do it outside as an extension of the church. And you know, nine times out of ten, it's not going to be some big, dramatic, public ministry. It's going to be a lifelong series of quiet, unheroic events. And God will see every one of them. And great will be your reward. That's the commendation from the mouth of Jesus himself. Some of you need to hear that. Here's the questions you should ask if you plan to remain single. Question number one, what's my reason, what's my motive for pursuing singleness, really? Is it to serve Christ better, or is it to pursue my own ease and comfort? Question two, how can I leverage my singleness, because it clearly has advantages, according to the Apostle Paul, How can I offer those advantages to God at this stage in my life that I'm in? And then question three, you need to ask yourself, how will I persevere? 
The same question that married people need to ask, by the way. What will I put into my life? What will I surround myself with to make sure that I am able to keep going, keep sustaining what God has called me to do? What are the obstacles I may have to overcome and face? In fact, we're, gonna, we're about to do a whole sermon series this fall on overcoming hurdles to faithfulness. That's application number one. For all of you who will continue in singleness. Question, application number two. This is for everybody, for all of you. Application two is for the whole church. We want to continue to work on creating a church culture where it is a good place to be single and it is a good place to be married. Where there is a bond that ties all of us together. Where there is a mutual encouragement that leaves no one out. So that this is a body, is a place where people are helped and encouraged in facing the unique challenges of their callings. Whatever it may be. Where each member is seen as valuable. So whenever there's a little temptation by someone to kind of drift, just kind of start drifting away, the rest of us say, no, 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 we, we need you here. So that if you're a single and you find yourself in a conversation with somebody outside of this church and they say, it must be challenging at times to be single, you can say, sure, it has its challenges, but I'm part of this church that's like a family to me. There's married people and there are singles and I'm so grateful to God. I'm so glad to be there. That's the kind of church we want to build. That's the kind of church culture we want to improve to be. Or if you're married, you might find yourself in a conversation with someone outside the church talking about the challenges of being married. And you might say, yeah, it can be challenging at times to be married. But I'm a part of this church and it's like family to me. And we look out for each other. And I'm so thankful to be a part of that. That's the culture we want to build here at Heather Hills. I want this church to be a place where singles experience full acceptance Full affirmation, full honor, full warmth from, from their brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I would love to see singles fully engaged in the ministry of this church, energized by the gospel, eager to serve, full of good ideas. And let's all ask the Lord to bring some more singles like that to us and help us to be a place where our, our primary identity is not single or married, but where our primary identity is in the Lord and where we see each other as brothers and sisters, fellow believers living for the same purposes, some in this way, some in that way. But we're working together and we continue to work together until we are together in the presence of God. And all the earthly things have passed away. Wouldn't that be great? That's the kind of church we want to be. A third line of application. And this is for those who will pursue marriage. Those who are single but will pursue marriage. And I'm thinking this morning of singles in their their 20s, 30s, 
40s, even beyond. But I'm also very consciously thinking of older teenagers this morning who aren't that far away from the possibility of marriage. It might seem like it's far away to them, but there's not that many years between them and the possibility of marriage. It's wise to get clear thinking now. So I'm thinking about teenagers. I'm thinking of their parents. And of course, as, as I've tried to stress these last couple weeks especially, I'm thinking of all of us as a church because we all need to be thinking rightly together about this. So for this group this morning, I want to provide some biblical counsel in the form of five things that need to be in place as you prepare for and as you pursue marriage for the glory of God, no matter what your status is as a single. The first thing that needs to be in place is a clear commitment to the supremacy of God. A clear commitment to the supremacy of God above everything else in your life. Jesus must come first. Simpler way to say that, the first thing that needs to be in place is your own godliness, your own pursuit of God, your own spiritual maturing. Listen, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord, the honoring of God, the overwhelming desire to live for God's glory. So ask yourself the question, single person, is there a pursuit of godliness in my life? Is there evident growth in godliness, whether you're 14 or whether you're 40? Are you faithfully attending to your spiritual life? Do you have a life in the Word of God? Are you submitted to God's Word from basic things like not marrying an unbeliever? to more complicated things like finding out what it means for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church? Is the desire for growing in godliness a significant part of your vision for a relationship? Are you in meaningful and useful and encouraging relationships with other believers in the local church? Is there a godly honoring of your parents? The bottom line, are you absolutely committed to the supremacy of God in your life and in your future marriage? Got to start there. Marriage is a good thing, but marriage is not the main thing. It's a good thing. It's not the main thing. We just spent uh, a day yesterday, several couples here thinking about this idea that marriage must be first vertical, the relationship between us and the Lord, before we concentrate on the horizontal between each other. So do a sober assessment at some point. Your future partner is going to see what you are like, and when they look at you, what will they see? Will they see a spiritual maturity? Will they see a godliness? Does he or does she evidently love God? Does he, does she live for the Lord? Build this now, ahead of time. 
Don't wait for marriage to get serious about your walk with God. Get a vision for the life lived for the glory of God and get it now. Get it now. A second thing that needs to be in place as you prepare for or pursue marriage, and that is a carefully considered purpose for initiating a relationship, for starting a relationship. A carefully considered purpose for initiating a relationship. Do you have one in place? Is it clear? What what are you getting into a relationship for? What's the point? What are you doing here in a relationship? Why are you entering into a relationship? Is it because that's what everybody else does? Is it because you've got some kind of feelings going on inside your anatomy? Listen, if you're not clear what it's for and what direction you're heading, you can see how quickly that is just going to deteriorate into something less than healthy. Something inherently frustrating. In many cases, something hurtful and in fact damaging to you. There needs to be a clarity and a purpose. Without this, your relationship will just wander. It'll just meander. It'll waste time. It will introduce distress. It will introduce temptation. So a clear and godly purpose needs to be in place. And that purpose is to determine the possibility of a God-glorifying marriage. That's why you should get involved in in a relationship. To determine if that person could be a husband or wife. That's the purpose. Now, um, another uh, thing that needs to be in place, and that's just some practical wisdom about timing and readiness. Singles, ask yourself this question. When will I be able to responsibly take on the responsibilities of marriage? Now listen, if that's four years away, it's just not wise to enter into a relationship. Doesn't mean you can't get to know someone. Doesn't mean you can't develop a friendship. But to, to, but to initiate some kind of exclusive paired-up relationship when you are not anywhere near being ready for what that kind of relationship is intended to lead to, that is not wise. In fact, that's foolish. That's being in a relationship that is hard to define, hard to manage, hard to know what it's for, and if you get into it prematurely, like so many of us did, And I won't even ask for a show of hands because you'd be shocked how many hands would go up. If it's entered into prematurely, it leads to unnecessary and hurtful and most of the time sinful entanglements. So young people, yes, get to know each other. Learn to be comfortable talking with members of the opposite sex. Enjoy friendships. Enjoy shared experiences. Do these things, but have a purpose not to enter into a paired-up relationship unless you are very near readiness to assume responsibility for what God designed male 
male relationships for, and that's marriage. Now, I can imagine a young person, a teenager, saying something like, uh, well, Pastor Brian, what am I supposed to do with these feelings? I, I just have these strong feelings. Well, there's nothing wrong with having feelings, right? God put that capacity inside of us. It's a good thing. That's part of what your heart is for. But those feelings are nothing in comparison to what will be created by entering into a relationship. And if that relationship, again, is entered into prematurely, those feelings will greatly increase and they will occupy your mind and your heart and they will tempt you and they will distract you and they will confuse you and they will bother you if there's not a readiness to pursue marriage at that time. Listen, God is at work, right? He's at work in your mind. He's at work in your heart, preparing you. So yes, the, the heart is capable of deep feelings. And that's a great gift from the Lord. But we must handle them wisely. So wait. Wait until godly, practical wisdom says you're ready to assume responsibility with all those feelings where this attraction is designed to lead. And in the meantime, godly practical wisdom says, what should I be doing now to prepare myself? Well, you should be growing in spiritual maturity, as we've mentioned, so focus there. You should be serving in your family and in your local church, so focus there. You should be learning, not just vocationally, but to be a more interesting and useful partner. So give yourself to your schooling. Give yourself to your other interests. Focus there. And when you're done with school, you should begin some increased responsibility, engaging in productive work, earning money and not spending it all, saving, beginning to give and be generous toward others. Don't wait until you're married to live responsibly. Ask the question, what should I be doing now to prepare? Even if you're a teenager, it's not too soon to ask dear old mom and dad, what should I be doing now to get ready? And the answer might be, give priority to nurturing your spiritual life or concentrate on doing well in school. Or the answer might be, get a job and start saving some money. It depends on your situation. But you need to apply practical wisdom regarding timing and readiness. All right, number four. What needs to be in place for singles pursuing marriage? A purposed commitment to sexual purity. A purposed commitment to sexual purity. Singles, and again, this doesn't matter whether you're older or younger, get this firmly fixed in your heart ahead of time. Don't follow the leads of your peers or the pagan culture around you. That will hurt you. In fact, it can hurt you very badly. Follow the lead of the God who made you 
and who has given you sexuality as a good and precious gift. Listen to your creator. Here's one thing he says from 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 3. You should know these verses. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and solemnly warns you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Singles, let the love of God and the authority of God that is so evident in those words capture your heart and motivate your behavior. Read these words and words like them regularly and hear God's voice of love and authority over you. You know, you can have good but vague intentions and it's not enough. You need to have crystal clear goals supported by very specific strategies that you very carefully carry out. This is a great test of spiritual maturity for both men and women. And as you enter into a relationship, you need to purpose to help one another succeed, which means how you dress matters. How, where you go matters. How long you're together on a particular occasion matters. Whether you're alone or with others, it matters. Have clear goals. Have clear strategies. Get a purposed commitment to sexual purity in place. Because it glorifies your God. Because it makes him happy. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. Um, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're going to finish out our service here in just a moment. I've got one more application, uh, a fifth thing for singles who are pursuing marriage to have in place. And that is the oversight of godly people, especially the oversight of godly parents. The oversight of godly people, especially the oversight of godly parents. Now here I'm thinking more of those who are younger, not so much those in their 30s or 40s or older. Although even then, the input and the counsel and the accountability of godly people who have some authority or influence in your life should be sought out, and it should be sought out early. Counsel and wisdom and input is always more helpful, always easier when you get it earlier. And God is particularly eager for young people to benefit from the care and the counsel of their parents. Can parents be over-involved? Can they be guilty of mixed motives? Sure they can. I imagine those things 
uh, to, to some degree, I have been guilty of along the way. But I don't think that's the big danger out there. The big danger out there would be the absence of involvement on a parent's part or the neglect of a parent's involvement on the part of their children. Parents need to be involved in a, in a preparatory way. And they need to be involved in the middle of a relationship as it's developing. Now, I know that that's a huge cultural clash that I've just said right there. But to have a wise and caring and godly father to interact in a loving and gracious and comfortable way with the young man who's interested in his daughter... To have a wise and godly and caring father help his son understand what it means to pursue a woman to the glory of God, that is a real gift to your children. And I mention fathers, not because mothers aren't involved. They need to be instructing their sons. There's a particular input that a mother needs to make into her sons. There's a particular input that a mother needs to make into her daughters. But fathers, you play a particular role here in God's design. You are a protector. You're a gatekeeper. You are the refuge for your daughter in particular until you pass her into the hands of someone else who will become her protector and her refuge. And you don't do this in a selfish or domineering way. You do it to serve your children and position them to the glory of God. Dads, your daughters are going to prosper underneath that. They just are. Now, she may not thank you in the moment. She might. But it's not your daughter's approval that you're living for, is it? Is it? It's God's approval that you're living for. And your daughter will prosper when you live for God's approval. She will. Now, if you're a tyrant, she's not going to prosper. Or if she's rebellious, she's not going to prosper. But God's design is for the input and support and guidance of godly parents and for the protection and encouragement and care from other godly people. And I hope you realize you have that in your church family, all around you. People who have been married for over 60 years. People who have been married just a few months. And everything in between. It's all right here. For singles preparing to pursue marriage, get in place the oversight of godly parents. Especially, uh, the, uh, the, uh, God, get, get in place the oversight of godly people especially the oversight of godly parents. Pursue that. Be systematic about that. And watch God pour out into your relationship His grace for His own glory.